Hello, and welcome to this Soulless Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit soullesschurch.com. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and we're going to be going through verses 4 through 16. And uh, if you guys would stand with me for the reading, I'll give you guys a couple seconds to turn there in your Bibles or your phones. Um, but it's Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Verses 4 through 16. And Solomon writes, Again I saw, for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This, is also, this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Better a handful with quietness than both hands fold together with toil and grasping for the wind. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without a companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all of his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asked, for whom do I toil and deprive of good? This also is vanity and grave misfortune. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. If they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a three-fold cord is not quickly broken. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end to all the people over whom he been made king. Yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. You may be seated. Dearly Father, we do come before you today and with a humble attitude and a humble heart. And Lord, we thank you for another day that you have made. We thank you for a time that we can gather and have uh, communion with one another and a time that we can read in your word. Lord, we simply ask this, that your word will touch our hearts as it falls on our ears. Lord, I ask that you remove anything that is of myself that you may speak this morning. We praise you for what you're doing in our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Today we're going to be looking at the name of the title of this uh, sermon I put together is How to Avoid Relationships. Now, relationships are a big responsibility. They drain you of all of your time and all of your emotional energy. Avoiding being in a relationship will allow you to focus more of your time on yourself. True? Does that sound good to some people? Does that resonate in your heart? Some of you are like, yeah, yeah, these, these relationships, they tear me apart. They absolutely destroy me. And now you're probably thinking, Russ completely hijacked Andrew's sermon series, and now he's going to teach us how to avoid a relationship when all we talk about here is community. You see you know something deep down inside you feels that way. It feels that, that relationships, I can't get into another relationship because there's so much responsibility that now I am tied to if I'm in that relationship. There's something inside of you that says, yeah, that's just going to take so much time and so much energy. I don't have time to join a soulless community. I don't have time to get in relationships with other people. You see, Solomon, as we read through this, is forcing us to remove our rose-colored glasses and take a brutally honest look at life in a fallen world. That's been the, the theme throughout Ecclesiastes that Andrew's really been uh, harping on and really been making evident through, through the sermon series. But as we do remove those rose-colored glasses and we're taking a look at relationships, we realize, or I've come to realize, that I am a terrible person when it comes to relationships. 
Maybe it's because I don't answer people's text messages or phone calls and I'm terrible at the phone. Or maybe it's because I just simply am not good with conversation and meeting new people and starting relationships. I can tell you nine million reasons why I am terrible at relationships. But one of the things I realize is that I am terrible at relationships. So who better to be up here today to tell you how to avoid relationships than somebody that is terrible with relationships? You see, our humanity inside of us destroys relationships. The humanity inside each and every single one of us destroys relationships. What do I mean by that? Think about the most perfect relationship that we see in the beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve. They were living on the perfect earth with nothing hindering them whatsoever, and what happens? They destroy the relationship between them and God, like this. We are awesome at destroying relationships. We don't have to teach through a series of how to avoid relationships because it's inside of us to avoid relationships already. We don't have to try. It automatically is going to come out of us. You see, the first thing that we're going to be looking at this morning on how to avoid relationships is envy. Envy, something that none of us have inside of us. I want to show you guys this quote, and I absolutely love it, is whenever a friend secedes, a little something in me dies. Gore Vidal. Listen, that is an epic quote. Whenever, whenever a friend secedes, a little something in me dies. How often have you wanted someone to fall flat on their face? How often have you wanted someone to fail? How often have you rejoiced when they did fail? And you might say, uh, you know what, Russ? I'm not as bad as you. That those feelings don't come in me. But maybe you think this. I don't mind them having victory. As long as their victory isn't better than my victory. As long as I am on top. You see, some of you have already thought of a name of somebody. Somebody that's in your world, that's in your sphere of influence, someone that you encounter that's in the exact same uh, atmosphere as you, and you say, you know what, that's my competition. That's the person that I do not ever want to see them secede more than me. For me, it's Drew Offerdahl. Many of you guys know that name because he goes to church here, and I saved this because I know he's not here. And so now I can confess myself without him ever even knowing that he is my arch nemesis and enemy. Drew and I picked up a sport, which is one of the fastest growing sports of today, called pickleball. And if you guys have never played pickleball, I highly suggest it. You can play it at any age from, uh, you know, 10 all the way up to 80s we play with people. Um, but it's very similar. It's like a mix between ping pong and tennis. That's the only way I know how to describe it. But we started playing pickleball, and our hopes were that we would be the most unstoppable doubles team on the Pompano courts. And, uh, and so we started playing. So we first showed up in the Pompano courts, and we're like, hey, we've never played this before. All these guys, they have like their own tournament bracket and everything. We can't get involved until we've actually like you know, hit a couple of the wiffle balls back and forth. And so we started playing just singles, going back and forth. Well, it became very evident, very fast, that Drew was a better pickleball player than me. But I do have to say that every time that I outscore him, there's something inside of me that goes, yes. There's something inside of me that makes my, my heart just warm. And it feels so good to score on Drew. It feels so good that at the end of the match that I've actually won one out of the seven. And I will hold on to that victory forever. And I know it's bad when we get to the end of the match and Drew's like up by like seven and he's just serving it, just practicing. Um, and then there's me and, you know, I, I pride myself in pickleball and uh, even though I'm not very good. And every time I hit the net, I create the most beautiful excuse ever. Oh, you know, I was trying, you know, my top spin on that one and, you know, it just didn't clear it over right. But when it's all said and done, there's a competition there that I see inside of me. There's something inside of me that really wants to beat Drew. There's something inside of me that when Drew beats me, it hurts me. He didn't deserve that. Or when he sh hits an unbelievable ball and I, there's no possible way I can get to it, it I say it's not fair. That's my, that's, my, that's my instinct inside of me. There's a slight competition that comes inside of me. But 
Solomon, although that is a little fun, Solomon gets to the heart of envy. He's going to remove the rose-colored glasses completely, and he's going to get to the heart of envy. And what does he say? He says, listen, envy is the heart and motive behind all of our actions. You see, envy is going to be the driving factor in all of our efforts that we make. It's the fuel that's going to keep us driving forward. That's what Solomon's painting the picture here, is that envy is going to be the thing that continues to push us forward. So envy, is it really that bad? And that's my question I really want to address here, is is envy really that bad? Because when you take a look at envy, it drives people to work harder. Every time Drew beats me, I get angry. And when I get angry, it drives me to play harder on the next match so that he doesn't ever win two out of three. Envy drives the economy. Think about any business that you know or any business that you're in. When you're looking at your competition, doing a competition analysis, you're looking at what are they doing, how can I do it, I want to do it better. It's going to drive and force us and force companies to get better. I don't know if anybody's into cars or the electric car phenomenon on Tesla, but there's a new truck that's fully electric that just came out that's supposedly going to smoke Tesla. It's called Rivian, and they said that they can almost turn, the car can almost spin like this because of all the functionality and everything. But if Tesla didn't create the Tesla, there never would have been a Rivian. And once there is a Rivian, now they're going to go back and forth, head to head, and it's going to drive the economy. It's going to do better. So is envy really that bad? Is friendly competition that bad? And I am going to say to you that if you call it friendly competition, it doesn't sound that bad. But what is inside your heart? You see, it might actually be worse than we could ever think or imagine. If you guys go back to Genesis again with me, you look at the first human crime that was committed. It was between Cain and Abel, two brothers. They both bring their sacrifices to God. They both hand over their sacrifices to God. But God rejects Cain's sacrifice. We see later on in Hebrews that we see that Abel's sacrifice was done in faith, and that's why it was accepted. But Cain was rejected. It started stirring something inside of Cain. It started hurting Cain deeply and emotionally. It started doing this thing to Cain where he started getting angry. He started becoming envious. And we see in Genesis that God warns Cain of what's going to come. Sin is at your doorstep, Cain. You know what the very next verse says? Cain killed Abel, his brother. You see, when Cain went to make his sacrifice before God, he never thought that him giving a sacrifice was going to lead to him killing his brother. But envy took root. And it continued to grow, and it continued to grow. And next thing you know, he's killing his own blood. You see, that's, that's on the extreme side. But let's actually take a look at what envy is. Here's the definition of envy. A feeling of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, or luck. You are looking at somebody, and there's something about them that you just cannot stand because they are better than you at it. They have more of you in it. They look better than you at it, and it's causing something inside of you that you absolutely hate. Envy is terrible. It's resentful longing that's aroused inside of you when you look at someone else's possessions, someone else's qualities, or someone else's luck that they might have. It's not just that. Let's see what the Bible says about it. It's Galatians Chapter 5, verses 19 and 21, and it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, um, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, reveries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in the past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Envy is something that God takes very seriously. Look what it's wrapped up inside of. It's wrapped up in murders and heresies and wrath and selfish ambitions and all these different things. God hates envy. It's absolutely 
a terrible thing. The other verse I want to show you is James chapter 3, verse 16. And it says, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Where there is envy, every evil thing is there. You see, envy also has cousins. And when you look at the word envy in the Bible, you see it interchanged with covetousness, and you see it also interchanged with jealousy. And they go side by side. And it was said once that jealousy is wanting your neighbor. Covetousness is wanting what is in your neighbor's hands. Envy is taking what your neighbor has in his hands. And so you can see that all these words, they they come together, they're very similar, but envy has something deep-rooted inside of you. You just want to take something from somebody. It's it's it's, It's almost anger. It's almost like this, I have to have it. I have to have what my neighbor has. See, envy is nasty. It's absolutely nasty. Now I pose the question. I said, hey, every single one of us have that inside of us. Every single one of us is using this envy to move us forward in life, that's using us as a fuel to continue for us to to strive for more, for more competition. You say, whoa, 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 Russ, that's not me. Envy is not me. I am not that bad. I should not be put up here with every evil thing. Every evil thing is not inside me. Envy, that's not what's inside of me whatsoever. But what I want you to do is continue to track with me, is think about an area of your life that you value or you prize. Something that you care about personally. Something that you do daily. Something that you claim to be an expert in or something that you have a gift in. I want you to think about that particular thing. Now I also want you to think about somebody that is in your world, somebody that you can identify with in that. For me growing up, it was swimming. And many of the people that know you know that I grew up as a competitive swimmer. And I'll never forget uh, one of my high school races. Um, I was going against a guy named Emmett. And Emmett, for me, I was 16. He was a senior. And Emmett was a nationally ranked, uh, one of the top seeds, chosen people to go to um, one of the biggest swimming schools, um, Division I, that there was. And, um, it came to our dual meet, and little did you know, I drew the name to swim against him, and, uh, and so I'm up there, and I'm standing next to him, and I'm 16 years old, and I'm this little scrawny kid, and Emmett is this like 6'4 beast. He had a full-grown beard in high school. I mean, he, he wasn't human. It looked like he got held back like 10 years, and uh, it was like a David and Goliath type of scenario, and it just so happened to be that no one goes to swim meets because swim meets are absolutely terrible. No one enjoys watching people just go back and forth in a pool, and it was the first meet that all my friends showed up at from my high school to see me swim, and now I'm going against like the number one person in the state. He's the three-time state champion. He's never been beaten in a uh, dual meet before in his entire high school career, and I'm going up against him. Well, luckily for me, in some way, shape, or form, I pulled out the win, and I beat Emmett, and I was like, there was so much joy inside of me. I was like trying to play it all cool. Like I swim over to his lane at the end and we go to shake hands and I'm like, oh, you know, good race. And I could just see the anger building up inside of him and uh, the envy over me. And, you know, the envy over me was making me feel even better. And I get out of the pool like this. You know, he's 6'4 next to me. I still look like a little kid, but I, there's something in my chest. It's all puffed up and I'm so happy. So I go home that night. And I'm from a small little town, and so everything that we do, every single sport, um, it's in the newspaper the next morning. And uh, I never really cared much about the newspaper, but there was something inside me that every time I swam, I woke up the next morning and read the newspaper to see if my name was mentioned inside of it, cut it out, put it in my little folder, in my little diary of, yeah, this is what happened on this date. And so the next morning, of course, I woke up, and you know, I opened up the newspaper, and there's a huge article on Manasquan versus Point Pleasant Beach, and the whole article. Um, it was, it was interesting. Uh, it was Emmett's face, and then a huge, like almost a two-page, like it was like half the newspaper, but it continued on. You had to flip to like the 10th page to finish reading it. But the entire article was about how Emmett lost to me, but it was a fluke. And I'm sitting there like, what? what? The, the newspaper didn't call me and say, hey, yo, you beat the state champion. This is the first time you ever lost in a duel meet. How do you feel, Ross? 
No, I didn't get any of that. You know, it was just like, okay, you know, I'm just waiting to just read happily, like, oh yeah, Rusty Emmett Walling, what a great defeat. But the whole article was an interview that the newspaper called and talked to Emmett after the race was done, and he played it off like it was a complete fluke. And the newspaper printed it as a complete fluke, like, oh, yeah, you know, it's no big deal. It happens in swimming. You know, there's some, like, small upsets. But, you know, I was really training for the next big meet that's following the next two weeks. And so this meet didn't really matter to me because my training would have been messed up if I actually tried my hardest. You know, it was all this garbage. And I was just like, jeez. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Envy began to grow inside of me. I was going to be at that meet in two weeks that he was writing all about. And I trained harder in those two weeks than I probably did my entire high school career. And when that time came, I was going to prove myself that I could still be the best against Emmett. You see, but as I continued to read the article and as I continued to, you know, let it sit inside of me, I began to ask myself some questions. I began to, like, you know, get upset. I said, you know what, he really didn't deserve that. I deserved that. I was the winner. You know, I did it better than him. They should have wrote about me. You know, why didn't I get their attention, and why did Emmett get all the attention? You see, why didn't they ask me how I felt after I won? Why did they ask him? Why did he receive the article, and why didn't I get the article? You see, it was Cain and Abel all over again growing inside of me. Yes, I used it to fuel my training for the next two weeks when I had to go up against him again. But there was an anger deep-rooted inside of me, and I began to think, you know, this guy is on my level. He's in my atmosphere. He's on a level playing ground with me. He's something that I take pride in, something that he takes pride in. I have to be the best. Friendly competition was out the door. Envy had taken root. You see, that's what happens to us. And if we all take a look at our lives and the spheres that we live in and the people that we identify with, is envy inside of us? Do you think, you know what, why did that person at work receive the bonus when I did all the work for it? You know, why, why did they get the opportunity and I didn't get the opportunity? Why is everybody praising her for her cute little outfit when mine's just as cute? And I'm going to outdo her next week anyway. And so whatever it may be, why? What? area of your life can you pinpoint and say, this is something that I care about? Because that's the area that you're most likely to see envy rise. You see, what I really want you to do is think about what that envy is for you. Not just that little area. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a place. Maybe it's how you feel about something. Maybe it's your circumstance. Whatever it is, I want you to think about that. And for you, it might be your colleague at work. And for another person, it might be uh, another mommy at a mommy group. Or it might be your sibling like Cain and Abel. Or it might be someone in this room within this church. But what I can tell you is as you think through that different thing, is that every single one of us is going to be tempted towards envy. Every single one of us is going to be tempted towards envy. You see, it gets dangerous because we all have inside of us a thing that we want to prove ourselves. We all care about what other people think of us. And because we all care about what other people think of us, we want to prove ourselves. You see, we find ourselves scanning. It's almost like the, uh, when you're doing your two-minute mingle and you're meeting someone for the first time and you go to shake their hand and you look them up and down and you're scanning, okay, the shoes, uh, the pants, you know, he probably has a little bit of money, he's got a nice watch on, and uh, you look up and you say, I hate that guy. You know, whatever it is, it might be, you're doing the scan. You're going up and down and you're evaluating. And, and people say it's the girls that do all of this. That I, I read an article uh, a couple weeks ago about a, uh, the whole article is a fashion lady telling why girls don't dress for guys. They really dress for girls to make other girls envious. And it has nothing to do with getting looks from guys. It has everything about making another girl envious. And girls get all the slack for that. But in reality, guys are just as bad. It may not have to do with what you're wearing, because I could care less about how I dress. But it might have to do about, in my job, what's going on. It might have to do with me evaluating their success. Why are they so good, and why am I not there? Maybe it's you looking at the, the girl and saying, hey, 
you know, why does she get a boyfriend that's so good looking when I'm better looking and I don't have a boyfriend? Or maybe it's the opposite with a girlfriend. Or maybe it's a wife. Why does that person have a wife and I don't? Why does that person have a husband and I don't? Maybe it's children. I have no idea what your, your thing is. Maybe it's a nice car. Maybe it's a job position. Maybe it's your social status where you care so much about your identity in the community that you need people to see you at a certain level. Maybe it's a skill that you have. Maybe it is your physical beauty. Maybe you're just living your life to get the compliments and the second looks. Whatever it is, I want you to identify what it is and think about it and think, you know, what is this true thing that's inside of me that can cause envy to arise? Because every single one of us has the opportunity to fall deep into envy. It's something that every single one of us is going to be tempted in because if the enemy's goal is to destroy us, envy has every evil thing inside of it, us, it's the thing that he is going to attack us with. So this is one of the huge things that we have to take a look at. And we can't forget in James chapter 3, verse 16, that confusion and every evil thing comes out of envy. You see, envy, once it takes root inside of us, it progressively gets worse. And I said earlier that, that Cain didn't go into his sacrifice thinking, I'm going to kill my brother, you know, in a couple days. It took root inside of him when his, when his sacrifice was rejected, when his brother's was accepted. And as it took root, it began to stir inside of him. He even got his warnings from God along the way that sin is creeping at his door, but he, the envy had already taken root, and it led to murder. You see, as envy begins to grow inside of us, it becomes a very dangerous thing. Our thinking begins to change. Our thinking begins to be warped. And it ultimately ends with, hey God, you could have solved all of my problems, but you decided not to. And that's a dangerous thing, that's a dangerous place to get to. When you're looking at God and you're saying, oh, you know what, I lost my job. I shouldn't have lost my job. Why? Because I was a harder worker than everybody that I worked with. Um, I wasn't making as much money as those people, and so it was in their interest to keep me on board. Whatever it may be, I lost my job, and God, you could have prevented that, and so now I'm going to get angry at you because you could have prevented something, and, and now I'm envious over this person, and next thing I know, I'm saying, you know what? God, you could have solved all my problems, and you didn't. That's where envy can take us. You see, God did solve all of our problems. Amen? It cost him his life. It was death on a cross so that we could have everything. Eternal life. That's what he gave for us. So that we could have everything. So that envy could be absolutely destroyed. But the problem is, is that envy is hidden. It's subtle. Most likely you guys don't know what I'm that envious about. And I probably don't know what you're envious about. Because we can be very good at hiding it. We can be very good at masking our envy. And it's a little subtle thing, and it's on the outside, but what it does is it helps us avoid relationships. Because if we become envious about somebody, we don't want to associate ourselves with them anymore. We want to stay as far away from them as possible. We always want to keep our eye looking at them so we can see what they're doing so that I can top that. But it forces us and it drives us away from relationships. You see, it destroys our relationships. So my question is to you, when was the last time that you confessed envy to somebody? You know, you go to your community groups and you're talking about different things you're struggling with. How many times have you actually heard someone say, you know what, I'm really struggling with envy? And for me, and I, I'm guilty of this as well, it's like, oh, how can I pray for you this week? You know what, pride. Pride. I, I've, I've been, you know, it's been something I've been struggling with all week. You know, also, I'm not really in my devotions. I just don't have the time. I haven't found time. I haven't made time. And, you know, those are the easy ones. Why? Because, oh, I'm busy. Oh, I have a higher view of myself than I really should. Man, I, I can work on that. I can fix that. But when you say that you're struggling with envy, it makes you look like a weak person. It's one of those hard things to admit. It's one of those hard things to realize and say, you know what? Yeah, I truly do have envy inside of me. Because who wants to look weak? You see, envy requires repentance. It's 
1 Peter, it's up here on the board for us, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and it says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. You see, there is a solution to envy. Not only did God die for us and give us everything that we have so that we wouldn't have envy, we still find ourselves having envy inside of us. And so what's the solution? It's repentance. And once we repent, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that they may grow by, find yourself and your time spent in the word and you'll watch envy disappear. Because the more you find yourself aligning yourself with God, the more you're going to see the things that are not of God leave you. Amen? How to avoid relationships. Envy destroys relationships. But it's not just envy that we see here in this text. It's isolation. This is probably the easiest thing if you want to avoid relationships to do. Isolate yourself. Just don't show up to anything that involves someone else. Get yourself completely on the other side. You see, in verses 7 through 12, I'm going to read through us right now, but we're going to look at an isolated person. Verse 7 says, Then I returned, and I saw vanity under the sun. Verse 8, there is, no, there is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there is no end to all of his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asked, For whom do I toil and deprive myself good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. He says, I returned and I saw vanity other son. We're going to hit another aspect of vanity, which is isolation. But the first thing we're going to look at is this person that Solomon is writing about. This is an isolated person. And he's isolated in two different ways. And the first way is a circumstantial isolation. He didn't pick to have no son he didn't pick not to have a brother. His circumstances brought him into isolation. You see, it was beyond his control. So every single one of us can find ourselves isolated beyond our control. And it might look differently for some people. For some people, maybe it was, it was just you and your spouse and you lost your spouse and now you're isolated all alone. You didn't have any children, whatever it may be. For some, it might be your location. Like my grandmother lives in the middle of nowhere. And literally the three closest houses to her are all owned by her on her farmer's property and they're empty. And so she's literally like isolated in the middle of nowhere in South Georgia, just surrounded by farms and fields. And so some of you, it might be your actual location. For others, it might be a traumatic experience, the loss of somebody. Maybe it was you getting fired. And so now you'd no longer have the community that you had at work. Maybe it was something that was done wrong to you. Maybe you're in a group of people and someone just wronged you completely and now you're exiled out of that group. Whatever it may be, the question then becomes is do you want to work out of your circumstances? Or do you remain in isolation? We see this man here that he puts all of his effort into working. You see, that brings up the second part of isolation. Isolation can either be circumstantial or it can be self-inflicted. His isolation now moved from a circumstance to self-inflicted. He becomes a workaholic. You know what? I have no time for friendship. I have no time for community. I have no time for relationships because I am working so much. And this is probably like one of the easiest things especially for guys, to go to and to lean towards is, uh, I, I just have to work. I don't have time because I have to work. And we justify working too much. It's really easy for us to justify working too much. I literally can go into work at 7.30 in the morning, and I can work consecutively for five straight days without ever coming home. That's how much work I can find myself busy doing. I am like the master at creating spreadsheets and uh, evaluating uh, these analytics on our website and this and that, and I can find myself busy and not come home. I mean, it was just Friday night, and usually I try to make Friday nights like my I want to go home early night, and I leave around 5.30. I usually go to work around 7.30. I leave around 5.30, and that way I can spend time with the family. And at 7.30, my wife, I get a text message, and I'm still in the meeting, and it's like, hey, where are you? And it was like, oh, I could have had this meeting on Monday. I could have postponed it until Monday. But you know what? He was there. I was there. Let's hash this out. Let's get it going. And I didn't end up leaving until well after 730. 
And so I had been at work for over 12 hours. I didn't have to, but it, I could justify it. I needed to have this conversation with this person. I needed to do that and see it was now self-inflicted. Work is the easiest solution to I don't want to hang out with somebody. It really truly is. I, I might get a phone call, oh yeah, we're doing this on Tuesday night. You want to come? Out? Oh, you know, um, I have work. Um, can't do it. Um, it's, it's like my easy way out of things. So if you guys ever get a text message from me like, hey, Russ, what are you doing? I, I have work. That's, that's it. Say, Russ, are you really working? Or is, this, um, is that what it is? You know, are you just being a self-inflicted, isolated person? The other thing under self-inflicted is you look at yourself as self-sufficient. Completely self-sufficient. I don't need anything else outside of what I personally have. I don't need anyone else. Anybody that needs somebody, it's weak. I can do everything myself. I don't need anybody to better myself. I can do it all myself. You know what? You know what the biggest problem with self-help books is? It's you are trying to fix you. You can't fix you. You can read a book, but ultimately you can't fix you. You need help getting fixing. That's why the Holy Spirit comes in and transforms you. That's why God says, you know what? I'm going to create a new creation. I'm going to wipe everything around and then we can build off the new creation because I can't work with what I got because I can't work with you. You see, self-sufficient. I can do it all on my own. I'm fine all by myself. The other thing which I've always tended to fall into is, you know what? Relationships and communities are weird. They're weird. Have you ever met Christians? They are weird. I literally, growing up, this is so bad. I literally went on a mission trip with, a, uh, with, with some Christians, and they were like, you know, the cool Christians. It was like all like the surfers, and, uh, and one of the guys like trained with Blair Hamilton, and he was like all down to earth, and it was, I guess it was like my parents like attempt on like, okay, we can fix Russ. We'll send him with like normal Christians. And uh, halfway, you know, it was like probably six hours into the trip. And I'm paired up with, like, this guy, and he's, like, preaching to me and the whole nine thing, whole nine yards. And I'm like, you know what? It's Christians like you that make me hate Christians. You are so weird. Like, just leave me alone. I literally, like, I just, like, erupted, and then they stuck me outside by myself for the rest of the day. It was like a forced isolation. Like, hey, if you're going to act like that, we want nothing to do with you. And I ended up taking a bus home from the mission trip. And I was like, okay, see you guys. See you guys later. But it's weird. I mean, think about the first time that you walk into a community group. And if you walked into community group solace at my house, um, I'm not like a, a, um, a host. I'm not a good host. Like, my mom is an absolutely wonderful host. I'm not a good host. And so you might just show up at my house. I, I might not even talk to you the first week. Like, like, I remember the very first solace, like last year when we started solace communities, like, I purposely bought all the hamburgers so that we could have hamburgers because that meant that somebody had to grill the hamburgers while everything was going on. Well, guess who was over there grilling the hamburgers all by myself? Just, you know, I don't want to talk to any of you guys. I don't want to get to know you. That's who I am. And I look at everybody as being weird, but in reality, I'm really the weird person. It's weird that I don't want relationships. It's weird that I don't want community. It's weird that I don't want somebody to step in my life and help me. You see, we force isolation upon ourselves. This guy is working. This workaholic is working. At the end of the day, what's he working for? He's working to get richer. He has enough money, but he finds himself continuing to work and work and work and work, and he just finds himself consumed. It's not like he can even give his money to somebody that he cares for. He doesn't have a son. He just can't just give his money. He's just working. It's all vanity under the sun. What is he doing? Where is his time? What is he deciding is important to him? You see, everything about self-inflicted isolation points back to us. We judge too quickly. Whether it be someone's appearance, whether it be someone's status, whatever it is, we put up these fronts, and we don't ever get to know anybody. And that's the problem. When we look at someone and say, hey, you know what, you're weird. You're putting up a front of, I, I really don't ever want to get to know you, even though you might end up being my best friend in life if I actually gave you the time. I just don't want that. It's self-inflicted isolation. You see, Solomon points out to us that there's a better way of doing this. In, in our humanity, 
We often choose self-inflicted isolation, but what does Solomon say? He says, two are better than one. That's what he says. Two are better than one. And I 100% agree with that statement, but I just want to add something else to that statement, is that the reality is, is two are better than one, but two is much harder than one. You now have two opinions, you now have two different approaches, you now have two different philosophies, you now have two different ways of doing things, and now you have someone that holds you accountable. And it's so funny because all the husbands are looking at their wives or the wives are looking at their husbands. <laughs> See, before I was married, um, I was the most wonderful human being that you could ever possibly meet. <laughs> then I got married and I realized that I am absolutely terrible human being. But marriage is the, the perfect, really throws up like the perfect mirror of who you really are. Because marriage brings friction. It brings friction. You see, I realize that there's two definitions of clean. <laughs> I'll pull my shirt out of the dryer every single day and all the clothes I need out of the dryer and just leave them in the dryer. They're clean. They're functional. I can take them out of the dryer, and if they have a little wrinkles, I can turn the dryer on for five extra minutes, get the wrinkles out, then put it on. I'm putting warm clothes on and going to work. That's how I function. My wife will do 20 loads of laundry, stack it on the couch, and then spend hours folding it all. That's probably the better way. If you've ever been to my house, my house is spotless because my wife is a clean freak. Then you introduce me, a 100-pound golden retriever, and two little boys, her mind explodes. It's funny, we were at this community group last week, we're all just like hanging out on the couch, like it was just a very relaxed night. We had a small group, and one of the boys was, uh, you know, they were shooting Nerf guns and stuff, and I was like, okay, these Nerf guns have to end. So what do I do? I take the gun and I just drop it behind me, behind the couch. Like that was my solution to the thing, and I guarantee you to this day, that Nerf gun's probably still behind the couch. My son keeps on asking me like, oh, where's my Nerf gun? I'm too lazy to go get it from behind the couch. But in all seriousness, yeah, there is two definitions of clean, and marriage brings friction, but there is some great things that my wife and I do get along about. Last night, um, we decided to stop and get dinner and spend some family time together. And so we went to dinner at uh, Wings and Things. And uh, we got a whole bunch of wings. And one of the beautiful things is my wife only eats the flats. Like, that is a beautiful thing for somebody that does not like the flats of chicken wings. And so there is things that we, we do get along at. And these are the things that I made sure before I got married. <laughs> the important things. Like, think about it. When you're sitting on the toilet, how does the toilet paper roll? Does it go over the top or does it come down from underneath? That, that, that will cause fights. It will cause epic fights of epic proportions because the toilet paper is supposed to come in over the top. That's how it's supposed to do. That's how it was invented. That's how it was made. But some reason, some people stick, my wife and I are on the same page on that. <laughs> we are good to go. But the truth of the matter is that we were made for relationships. We were made for community. We were not made to be isolated. I'm just going to keep on referencing Genesis. So let's go back to Genesis. And you take a look at Genesis, and God is what? Doing all the creating. Okay. So he creates light. What does he say? It is good. He creates earth and the seas. And what does he say? It is good. He creates all the vegetation. And what does he say? It is good. He gets to man. What does he say? It is not good for man to be alone. It's the first time in the Bible that God says something was not good. We were not made to be alone. We were not made to be isolated. Think about all the verses that you know. Proverbs chapter 27. You may not know where I'm going with this, but once you hear it, you will. Iron sharpens iron. We need each other. It would be impossible for one tool to miraculously sharpen itself without another tool to help it. The tool would become useless without another tool to help sharpen it. We were not made to be isolated. You see... If you look at it from a doctor's perspective about isolation, people that are in community or in relationship, they have a healthier and longer life. 
These are facts from doctors, not Dr. Russ, real life doctor, um, which came to me through Dr. Google, which knows everything. So <laughs> if it's on the internet, you better believe it. Not only does you get a healthier, longer life, but you have a better immune system. You're less likely to suffer from depression and anxiety. You also should have lower stress levels. Now that doesn't take into account the marriage aspect of it, but we should, if it is a functioning true relationship, it should bring down our stress levels. But you say, you know what, Russ? We don't need community all the time. We don't need relationship all the time because I need my breathing room. I need my time to just sit back and breathe. And if you're super spiritual, I need time for my soul to air out. You know, I've heard so many different things. Um, I need to privately recharge. And let me tell you something. The first thing that happens when my wife and I get into a fight, I just need to get out of there. But let me tell you something. Isolation is different than solitude. Isolation is leaving and you're now stranding yourself on this island and you want nothing to do. It's different than solitude of where you actually need a little bit of time to cool down, to get all of your anger out, to get back to normal, to then go back into the argument that you had with a clear mind, to pray, to get things settled. You know, solitude is different than isolation. It is good for you to have a time of solitude. Jesus did it. How many times in the New Testament and in the gospel message you see Jesus retreating from the disciples? And he goes and he climbs a mountain. Now, I, I personally, when I, when I need to, you know, flesh out, get some air, I, I don't go climbing mountains and do a lot of hard work. The hardest thing I might do is I might go fishing. That's like my, but I'm not going to go climb a mountain. But not only that, we do see him not only just climbing mountains, we just see him getting away from people. You see all the crowds swarm him, and what happens at one point? Jesus just disappears. He says, oh, you know what, disciples? You guys get in a boat, and don't, I'll meet you on the other side. I'm going to be by myself for a little bit. But what's the difference between isolation and solitude? The true difference between isolation and solitude is, let's take a look at isolation in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1. It says, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire he rages against all wise judgment. If you are in isolation, you are only seeking your own desire. You could care less about anything else. You're only going to rage against anything that someone brings before you because you only care about yourself. Forget you. Forget everybody. I'm doing it my way. That's isolation. You see, solitude, on the other hand, it's completely different. Solitude renders fruit. It doesn't get angry. It doesn't push people away. It renders fruit. Every time that we see Jesus leave to go climb a mountain and be with God, what does he, happens? He comes back with direction. What happens when he tells his disciples to get in the boat and go across the water? A huge storm erupts. And what happens? Jesus brings in faith. Solitude is always going to bear fruit while isolation is just out on its own. Solomon just doesn't just leave us with like, hey, yeah, you know, solitude is it. Um, don't do it. Make sure you're in relationship. But he's going to give us four reasons why we should not isolate inside of this. The very first one we see in verse uh, 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. The very first thing that we see why we should ultimately be productive, is that there's increased revenue. There's increased revenue when we get together. The second thing we see in verse 10 is, for if one falls, one will lift up his companion. You see, every single one of us are going to fall, whether it be in business, whether it be in ministry, whether it be spiritually, whether it be in our own faith, or maybe in our, our entire lives are falling apart. And what's the thing that we need? Stability. You have somebody there that's ready to restore you. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It tells us that, you know, if someone has fallen into sin, we are the, that we are there to restore them, to bring them back to a place. You know, it wasn't planned, but we're not just going to throw you to the side and get rid of you. We're going to restore you. 
The third thing that we see Solomon do is he says, listen, it's intimacy. He says, two uh, lie down together. If two lie down together. Now, this isn't talking about any sexual thing. It's talking about a practical huddle, huddle between two people. These are two travelers that are going out, and at night it gets absolutely freezing, and the only blanket they had was the cloak that goes over them. And so if you are alone and traveling, you're only going to be so warm because you have this one cloak. But if you have two people, you huddle close to each other, then you put two blankets on top of each other. They didn't have goose down back then. And so the two blankets would keep you warmer than one blanket. You see, intimacy. You see, it's the idea that all of our masks are dropped and we acknowledge that we need somebody. And then within acknowledging that we need somebody, honesty is going to prevail and then communication is going to happen. You see, it's tough to snuggle somebody when you're angry with them, right? Have you ever gone to fight with your wife or your husband? You say, you know what, we just need to snuggle. No, it doesn't happen that way. I mean, it's like trying to snuggle with a lioness that wants to kill you. Um, but the Bible says is don't let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Because separation is going to happen, and isolation is going to happen. The fourth thing that we see, and I know we're running out of time here, the fourth thing that we see here is security. In verse 12, it says that though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a three-cord is not quickly broken. You guys have heard this at almost every single marriage ceremony that you have been to, right? A three-fold cord is not quickly broken, Luke chapter 10, verse 30. I'm not going to go there, but it tells the story of the Good Samaritan. What happens? He's alone. What happens to him? He gets beat up. Listen, if we had three of the security guys walking with that, that person, you think they would get beat up? No, those, all the security guys, they stand ahead over me. I wouldn't want to mess with any of our security guys at Solace Church. You probably don't even know who they are because they blend in. Um, that's part of their role, but that makes them even scarier. Um, so definitely travel in numbers. That's what fish do. They school up because they look bigger than they truly are. But you've also heard it preached that there's a commonality that happens when you take three cords and you braid them together. And that commonality is when you introduce God into a relationship. You see, you intertwine God, and once you intertwine God into a relationship, that relationship is not going to be easy to break. Ultimately, it's going to stand the test of time. It's going to stand temptation. And that is why we cannot isolate. We need others, and we need God in our relationship. So how to avoid relationship? Yeah, you want to avoid relationship? Just isolate yourself. It's the easiest way to do it. Isolate yourself. The third way to avoid relationships is be a know-it-all. Who likes a know-it-all? None of us. Um, it's verses 13 through 16. It says, Better a poor and a wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. And we see in this little blurb that this old king who was once admonished by everybody for how great he was, he decides he wants to start rejecting the counsels of others. And they say, you know what, we're doing away with the old king. But now who's coming? This young guy who's willing to listen who was actually in prison, so it's amazing that they're taking him out and putting him as king, but he's willing to listen because he's not a know-it-all. And what is a know-it-all? You see, the older king became, and this is not a know-it-all. Uh, imagine, like, you're, you, tell, you guys all have been there with someone, and you're telling a story, and you're like, man, it was the hottest day of the year, and my air conditioning in my house broke. And then the guy standing next to you, um, actually, the hottest day of the year was August 3rd. That was the fourth hottest day. No, this is weird. And then you're like, okay, you know, whatever, whatever. You know, do your, do your own little thing. You're like, well, so it was the hottest day. So I said, if it's going to be hot, I might as well take the kids out to the park. And so, I, you know, my kids are as white as white gets. I don't, they have, they're half Hispanic, but I don't know how they're half Hispanic because they look whiter than me. Um, so, you know, I'm going to apply SPF 75 on them just to make sure nothing, no beam of sun is going to touch my kid's skin. And... Then the same guy's like, well, actually, anything over SPF 50 doesn't really do anything, so the max that you should really be purchasing. And you're like, no, that's not a know-it-all. That's a guy that does not know how to have conversations. That is a guy <laughs> that is weird. That is a guy that, you know, just... You need to have, like, a separate conversation with them and train them how to have conversations and enter into conversations. But a know-it-all is the guy that walks into a room and all the oxygen is sucked out of the room. 
you feel them coming into the room because you've experienced the know-it-all from them before, and now you just don't want anything to do with them. You see, they're the person that you notice tends to take over the conversation. You're having a nice conversation. This person comes in, and they start taking over the conversation, and then they turn into a platform for something. You know, usually this person has some sort of training or knowledge about something. Maybe if it's in a spiritual sense, maybe they went to theological school or went to a Bible college or whatever it may be, but they're using it to as a platform to show you how much they personally know and how much scripture they might know. Those types of people irritate you. They stifle the discussion. It doesn't allow anybody to else have involvement. So if you want to avoid relationship, make sure that you are a know-it-all. Because outside of hurting the group, it's going to hurt that person even more so. Because it's going to avoid relationship with God, ultimately. A know-it-all is going to avoid relationship with God. It's Proverbs chapter 28, verse 6. Look what it says here. It says, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but whoever walks wisely will be delivered. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. That's what a know-it-all is. You can't be taught, you can't learn, and ultimately you can't become a disciple. Why? Because in order to be a disciple, you have to be humble. You have to put yourself under somebody. A know-it-all will never put themselves under somebody, hence they will never be a disciple. They're going to separate themselves they're going to remove the relationship with them and God because they have this know-it-all. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, and it reads, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. You don't know anything. I don't know anything. We need to stop acting like we know something because we don't. The only thing that we should know is the word of God, and that's the only thing that we should stand on. Amen? Amen. Worship team's going to come out as we finish. But how to avoid relationship. Solomon's removing the rose-colored glasses to show us that we are terrible with relationships. We don't need a how-to manual, how to avoid relationships, because we are going to destroy relationships by ourselves. You see, Jesus' desire was not for us to avoid relationships, but for us to thrive in relationships. We see it in John chapter 17, and it's the end of Jesus' ministry and time on earth, and we see him doing a series of prayers. And in John 17, verse 22 and 23, this is what he's praying. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. It's the last time we see Christ doing his prayers. That's recorded. And we see he's praying for us to become one. He desires us to be in a relationship. And so where does envy fit in? You see, he came to earth, humbled himself, got off his throne, came all the way to earth, lived a perfect life, died for us to do away with envy so that each and every single one of us would have eternal life, so that we would be given the greatest gift of all, of eternity with our Father. There's no room in there for envy. He gave his all so that we would have all. And if we have all, there's nothing that we should be envious of. Where does isolation fit in? You see, Christ carried our burdens so that we don't have to. Then he turns around and commands us in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, and he says, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. You can't carry someone else's burdens if you are wrapped up in isolation, because there's no one there. So Christ doesn't want us to be isolated. He wants us to come together 
and community and relationship so that we can help carry each other's burdens. Because let me tell you, there's days in my life where I need somebody to help carry my burdens. And my wife does a great job at it, but I can't just have my wife. Because there's times that I need someone else, another man to explain, to help carry, somebody that's walked through it, an older person to speak insight into my life. We need each other. We can't just go out there and survive on our own. We were never meant to be isolated. See, being a know-it-all doesn't fit in that at all. Our relationship with Christ will continue to reveal our need for him. Why? Because he'll put into light how little we actually know. The more I study the Bible, the more I realize I don't know anything. And the more I study the Bible, the more I realize that there's things inside of me that I need to get rid of. And there's times that I think I conquered something and then I, you know, two weeks later I read that verse and I'm like, wow, I only conquered it to a small degree. I had no idea it was this big. See, our relationship with Christ will continue to reveal our need for him. The beautiful thing is that Christ died so that we could have that perfect relationship with him. How to avoid relationships? It's a stupid title of a sermon. Ultimately, God wants us to have the perfect relationship. And we can only have the perfect relationship if we find ourselves in a relationship with him. Amen? We're going to take a little bit of time as the worship band does one song. And I want you guys to concentrate and think. Think about the things that you find inside your lives that, that is a root of envy. Or something that you can find yourself becoming envious about. I want you to think about all the times you find yourself isolating yourself. Not the solitude, but isolation. And I want you to think about all the areas of your life that you are know-it-all. And think about how you push relationship to the side. And how terrible you are at relationship. Because we all are. Every single one of us. But Christ died so that we might have the perfect relationship. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.